I would have your attention drawn back to Ephesians 1 this morning, verse 15. We'll read through the end of the chapter. I don't think we'll won't near make it through the end of this chapter today, but we'll read through the end. Starting in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, We thank you, Lord. We come before you with praise and adoration. Lord, we come before you with humbled hearts to know of your sovereignty, to know of your your great grace and your mercy uh, for the work that you have done on our behalf. Uh, Poor and needy sinners, unable to to come to you, unable to, to know you apart from you giving us your word. Lord, unable to to stand before you except in the the righteousness of our Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, give us thankful hearts. Lord, pour out your Spirit upon us this morning. Your Spirit of wisdom and, and revelation that we might more fully know you, that we might experience you, that we might see things of you and know things of you that we might commune with you here this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us eyes that we may see. Lord, enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might see and be fed from your word. In your name we pray. Amen. I remember a time several years ago uh, when I went with some relatives and a friend up to the mountains in Montana, uh, there's a, a town called Shoto, and somewhere near Shoto, Montana, there is a six-hour, or excuse me, six-mile round-trip hike up to a place that I refer to as Hidden Lake. Uh, I think most of your maps uh, in in Montana and most of your hiking things call it Our Lake, but it's a lake that sits up on top of this mountain. Um, originally a glacier-fed lake, and that that lake feeds uh, the area all around there from the snow melt that accumulates on the peaks that, that flow down into this lake. And then there's a waterfall that comes off of that lake 
comes down into a creek and feeds that whole area, like I said, with that snowmelt. Well, when we began our hike up to our lake or Hidden Lake, uh, we were down in a valley, kind of like a bowl. Uh, you get there and you park and, and you're just in this, down in this valley and up around you are all these peaks and trees everywhere and it, it, it's a beautiful spot. Um, but I could just see a little bit where I was there of, of where I was going towards as we made this hike up to our lake. And as we began to, to, to hike and gain elevation, you would catch a, a more immense sense of the beauty of this place. Uh, even there was this little clearing in the last section. You'd hike up all these switchbacks and you'd come to this little clearing where the creek was, was ro uh, rolling through. And you would look up to your right and you would see that waterfall there. And this clearing uh, it was a beautiful spot. Beautiful spot if you wanted to camp. Beautiful spot that you could get some fresh water. But it was nothing, as beautiful as it was there, it was nothing in comparison to when we climbed up just a little bit further. I was able then to stand at the edge of the lake, right at the edge of the waterfall. And over to my left was these peaks and the, this beautiful, pristine lake. And I could see from that vantage point down below over the edge of the waterfall into the valley where we started and into the clearing where I was right, right as I caught this glimpse of this waterfall before we made the last, last climb. <clears throat> it was really, really beautiful. The more I looked, though, the more I realized that I was once again in a bowl of sorts. You get up to this lake, and though you can see down into the valley, you're still in a bowl. There are peaks all around you. And, <coughs> excuse me, there was a height that I had yet to attain to. There was something that I had yet to, to summit to be able to take in the grand view of everything. So with the energy that I had as the young man I was back then, myself and the others that were with me, uh, we made the hike on up to the very, very top, to the apex of this peak. <clears throat> the view from the top. I cannot explain the panorama that was displayed there before me. It's one of those you have to see it to believe it type things. You have to experience it to actually know what it's like. You can see it in pictures. You can hear about it. But when you stand there and you take in this panoramic view, this vista before you that you can literally see 50 to 100 miles in every direction. You can see peak after peak on the horizon. You can see the lake beneath you and you can see the point at which you started. Majestic sweetness all around in every direction. God's handiwork, His creation, His power, His rule, His authority, all being displayed before you as you take in His creation. It was as if the verse that says, the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. A view like this makes you understand what creation shows you.
what it displays for you. The power of God revealed in his creative work. Well, this is what Paul here in our text is hoping for the saints in Ephesus. That God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the true knowledge of God. Paul here starts off with verse 15. For this reason, he says. He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, he gives thanks for them. He has heard that there were those in the area where he ministered for more than two years. But by the time that this epistle was written, it is quite likely that five years has passed since Paul was there ministering in person to the church and the people of God there in Ephesus. The church had grown. Maybe it it is the growth of the gospel even around the church in the greater area of Ephesus that Paul is so thankful to hear that the people are coming to faith, to a saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You'll remember if we we were to, to go back to Acts, what a great work was being done there in Ephesus during Paul's time. Paul was often speaking in the synagogue, and he was reasoning and persuading them with them about the kingdom of God, even in the, in the midst of opposition that was taking place there in the synagogue there in Ephesus, God's word was being proclaimed. God was working. In Acts 19.10, we read that this continued for two years so that all the residents, not just of Ephesus, but so that all of those in the region of Asia, the residents of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Ephesus being the cultural center it was, was often a place where people came and the word of the Lord was being proclaimed there and those people that heard the word of the Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit believed they carried that word with them throughout all of Asia. In Acts 19.11, the very next verse, it, it, it tells us, Luke tells us that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And the last part of that passage in Acts 19.20 It it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There was a great work being done in Ephesus. Well, five years later, Paul's heart is overflowing with thanksgiving that he hears of their faith in the Lord Jesus and the love that they have for the saints. Are these not two distinguishing characteristics of those who are saved? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. This always seems to be the case. Uh, there are two, like I said, two distinguishing characteristics of the saints. That, that they would have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work, and that faith would lead to love for Christ, and that love for Christ invariably leads to love those who are loved by Christ and love Him in return by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Love for one another naturally flows out of faith and love for Jesus Christ. The Apostle John constantly and boldly declares this to be the truth about the love for the saints in his first letter, the letter that we have of 1 John. Listen to the references for this. 1 John 2.10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. 
the very next chapter, chapter 3, verse 10 of 1 John, by this is it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The next verse, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The next verse, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. John just keeps on bringing this up. In the next chapter, in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love for one another. I could go on. I could go on. Paul often uses this same language to express his thanks to God. In Colossians 1, verse 3 through 4, We always thank God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, how often do we hear this language from Paul? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And in Philemon, verse 4 through 5, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I heard of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for your brothers and sisters, your fellow saints in the Lord. Paul is truly thankful for hearing of this faith and love and expresses it to the Father by way of prayer. And in what manner does he pray for them? What manner does he give thanks for them? He does this ceaselessly, constantly remembering them in prayers of thanksgiving before the throne for their faith and love. This too seems to be something quite common from Paul as we read Paul's letters, that he has a heart and knowledge of the Father and what he has done and is doing in these individuals' lives, which leads him directly to prayer. He is constant in communion through the work of the Spirit with the Father to remember fellow believers and to pray for them continually, to pray for them ceaselessly. Romans 1, 8 through 9 tells us, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of, son, of His Son, that without ceasing... I mention you. And in Colossians 1, 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled, very similar to what our text is here, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
What a blessing and a privilege it is that we might be able to pray as Paul did for each other. To pray and to love our fellow saints. And that love should always lead us to be much in prayer for those who are also loved and love God. Always. I fear we too often come before the throne predominantly with requests and prayers for the sick and the afflicted, um, for things that we're going through in our lives. And I, I don't want, I don't want to, to be misunderstood, and I don't want you to get me wrong. We should do all these things. We should make requests. We should pray for healing. We should be praying for direction and praying for those which God has placed on our hearts as burdens. Uh, it's right that we do so, and we are told to do so, but I would point out this morning that our prayers should also be prayers of thanksgiving. And that maybe should be the starting point of our prayers to go to the Father with thankfulness in our hearts for what great things He's done. Well, as we go on, it's at this point I find that things in this passage get really interesting. Paul has heard of their faith and, his, and their love. He knows and is, is writing to who? He's writing to Christians, to the saints, as he tells us in his salutation. Those set apart, those, as we read verses 3 through 14, those who he chose before the foundation of the world, those who he predestined to adoption according to the purpose of his will, those who have been redeemed in verse 7 through his blood and who have experienced the forgiveness of sins, those who he lavished in all wisdom and insight and made known to them the mystery of his will according to the purpose of God the Father that he set forth in Jesus Christ, God the Son. Those who have obtained, not just will obtain an inheritance, but those who have obtained an inheritance. Those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Knowing all these things, Paul goes on in verse 17 through 19 to request something more of God. Paul is saying something rather remarkable here in light of what he's already told us and what we've already learned that the state of these saints is currently. Yet Paul doesn't seem to be satisfied with their present condition. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated it like this. He said, we might have thought that there was no need to pray for people who had experienced such blessing. Look at the blessings as described in verses 3 through 14. What more can you pray for those individuals? But Paul prays for more. He doesn't seem quite to be content with where they're at and wants more for them. What he is saying here is that these things that they have already experienced are not an end to the faith. They are but the beginning of the faith. He is praying that they may continue to experience more blessings, more mercies, more and more. 
and more. It's like a child being born. Birth is not the end, but it's the beginning. And there is much more yet for the child to grow into and experience besides birth. There are heights yet to be obtained. There are panoramas and vistas yet to see and to experience. It's like my hike. Oh, it was good to see the beauty and experience the valley where it all began. But to see it in its full glory and splendor and grandeur is something altogether more wondrous. And even on my hike, I didn't even yet see it all. I was bound to go as high as I had the earth beneath me. Couldn't get any higher. Six feet above the highest point was as far as I could go to catch a glimpse. Paul wants something here in the text more for them than just the beginning of blessing. He prays for the spirit of wisdom to be given to them and the spirit of revelation. He prays for the spirit here to open the eyes of your hearts that they might be enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which the Father has called them, that they may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power according to his great might. This is not that they know about them. There's a big difference. But that they would know them, that they would come to have an intimate, experiential understanding of them. That they would have them become a reality to know by way of experience in their lives, not in theory, but in practice by the power of the spirit of wisdom and revelation, this same spirit that gives them wisdom and revelation that in Isaiah, Isaiah 11, we read of this spirit, the sevenfold working of the spirit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That is the promised one. That is the, the branch from David. The spirit shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What he's praying for here is a deepening of faith, a broadening of true experiential understanding. It's one thing to know about someone, isn't it? But it's altogether something different to actually know that person. I know a lot of people, but I know my wife, I know my kids, I know my parents, I have experiential, experiential knowledge of them that far surpasses anything I know about anyone else. I wake every day to my wife and kids and we speak with each other daily. We eat together, we travel together, we read together, we pray together. We sorrow together. We cry together. We experience joy together. We laugh together. All that life is, we experience together. 
This differs greatly from what I experience and know about anyone else in this world. Do you see here what Paul is getting at in this text? This is much more than mere knowledge about, much more than mere understanding of what a doctrine is. It is an intimate understanding, an experience of that which makes up the doctrines that we hold dear. It is the living out of these doctrines practically and experientially. The doctrine and teaching is good. I love doctrine. I love theology. And we must ponder the realities and the theologies that we find in Scripture. But the mental assent to these things is not what Paul is seeking that the Spirit give these believers in Ephesus. He pleads with the Father that he would give them the living out, the experiences of these things, that they may actually know them in an intimate and meaningful way. Not theories, but living out the actual truth of what those theories, those doctrines, the, the theology represents. Let's look at this from a, a practical sense. Do you, when you wake each morning, have an experience with God? Do you experience His love? Do you, fellow Christian, have an encounter with the one who made you, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb? Does your heart overflow with thanksgiving to the sustainer of life for allowing you to take a breath. For allowing you to have a heart that still beats within your chest. Do you see and feel? Do you experience His provision for you as you sit down in the morning to break your fast from the night before? Do you give thanks for the food that you're about to partake of? Not a mere repetition of words, but do you, does your heart actually experience thankfulness? We far too often have a very myopic view of things. You know, my food. I get up and I go to work. I work for money. I get my paycheck. I bring my paycheck into the bank account. My wife makes a grocery list. She goes to the grocery store. She buys the groceries. She comes home and she fixes it. I don't do a whole lot of cooking. She fixes it and she places it there before us for us to eat. Same way with the clothes I wear, right? I work hard, I go, I make money, I put it in the bank, I go to the store and I buy my clothes that were obtained in the same way that we get our, our food. You know, we may give in our, in our such narrow view of things so often. I may give mental assent to the fact that God provided these things for me, that they come from God. But do we experience daily? Do we have the experience of thankful hearts for the job? the money that my job produces, 
the relationship I have with my wife who seeks to do what is honoring of a wife according to Scripture, that she goes and do I have thankfulness in my heart for her for going and buying these things with the money that we earn and then coming home and do I have thankfulness for the Lord for giving her to me that she would provide for me in that way. I wish I could quote verbatim. Jonathan Edwards was one, once asked something along the lines of, how do you live your, in, in prayer? How do you live your life in, in prayer? And he went through several instances, everything during the day, and how that leads him. Because of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom, and the Spirit of revelation who worked in his heart to make him truly, experientially, thankful for everything that came across his path. The good things and the bad. All of it leads him to give thanks to God. Do you experience that? Do you talk with your Heavenly Father? Do you talk with Him? Do you bring before Him the gratitude and thankfulness that should be flowing from the depths of your heart? Do you bring forth from your lips the praise that is due Him when you wake every morning, throughout the day, numerous times during the day, and before you lay your head down when you go to sleep at night? Do you bring before Him the burdens and the requests of your heart in the same way that you make them known to your best friend? How often do we talk about someone who is a, about things with someone who is a friend of ours? Do we have communion in that way with our Father? Do you hunger after His Word and the heavenly food that it can provide for you? Can you go a day without meeting Him in His Word? Do you hear Him speak from the pages of Scripture as you read line after line of that which is given to us in the written Word of, of God, that which is miraculously, providentially, and miraculously preserved for us? There's been men trying to get rid of God's Word from the time it was written, and somehow or another it is here for us to read and to benefit from. You remember the two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24? When, when Jesus departed from them after opening their eyes to who He was, they spoke of the Lord opening up the Scriptures and said, didn't our hearts burn within us? Does your heart burn with love and thanksgiving for His Word? That you can sit down and open up the very Word of God and read of it. That you can hear the Gospel proclaimed as it's preached from the Word. Does your experience, do you experience the love of God in your hearts that cause you to say, give me Christ or else I die? Do you have that type of experiential relationship with Him that He is your all? 
that he is everything to you. Psalm 53, when David in his penitential psalm says, Take not your spirit from me. Well, he knows that God's not going to take his spirit, but it's the presence, the experience, the, the nearness of the spirit of God in his life. Take not that from me. Don't take it from me. Don't take it away. Or Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he cried out at the experiential knowledge of God's holiness, he experienced the the holiness of God. It wasn't just a theory to Isaiah. It wasn't just something he had read about. He experienced the holiness of God. And he says, woe is me. I'm undone. A man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, I've seen him. I've had an encounter. I know him now in a way that is beyond just theory. Job said he had heard of him by the hearing of his ear, didn't he? But what did he say? But now my eyes see him. He has experienced God. He has had an encounter with the sovereign God. Paul wanted more than just the beginning for these Christians. He wanted them to grow in knowledge, to grow in understanding, always pressing toward the goal, always experiencing more of the greatness, the transcendence of God, but also His closeness. His nearness to them. What is it that gives us hope? Gives us confidence? Gives us boldness in proclaiming a life-giving message, this gospel of salvation to a lost and dying world? It is the experience of being given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowing God. Once again, not knowing of God, but knowing experiencing, encountering the living God through the working of this spirit of wisdom and revelation. He can make us, of us, who have been granted this spirit, an exceedingly great army to go out and be ambassadors for Him. Think about how much more powerful it is to talk to someone who has experienced this life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ than it is that one who talks about it. There's a huge difference. I just watched a documentary on revival. In this documentary, mention is made of a revival that took place in 1949 in the town of Barvis on the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. There were two old ladies, two old ladies, sisters, by the name of Peggy and Christine Smith. One was crippled with arthritis and one was blind. The documentary says that they spoke Gaelic, but they also spoke with God. 
They prayed ceaselessly, year after year, as Paul did, for God's blessing on his people there in the Isle of Lewis. They, like Paul, knew something beyond a basic head knowledge of God. They had and, and, and continually, over and over throughout their lives, encountered God and spoke with Him. They communed with Him in prayer. And what they prayed was much the same as Paul prayed because they were led by the spirit of wisdom and revelation and they prayed for that same spirit of wisdom and revelation to be poured out upon the people in their community. They understood that even true religion could somewhat could be somewhat shallow and still in that infant-like stage. So they prayed. They spoke to God and knew Him experientially, which caused them to have confidence that God could and even would bless His people with something far greater. They asked the leadership in their church to unite in prayer with them. And even one of the sisters stated to the minister, you've tried all kinds of different things. You've tried missions. You've tried evangelistic services and special evangelists. And then she said, but maybe now it was time to try God. And through this, God visited this small Isle of Lewis with something amazing. With a true gospel revival where souls were saved. There was a minister by the name of Duncan Campbell who went there and he was supposed to go there for, I think he said, two weeks and ended up being there for three years. And he was preaching in a service and preaching to about 300 people. Um, I think the documentary says that even that message, there was no great effect upon the people. But towards the end, while someone was praying, I believe it was, that one of the church officers came in and he said, hey, something's, something's happening here. Something's happening. They opened up the doors. There were 600 people outside the church. That meeting that, la- that night lasted till 4 a.m. There was a dance that a young, young people, young adults and some teenagers, were having on the other side of the island. And something happened while that church was meeting. And they said that those young people left that dance like they were fleeing from a plague. Something happened. Something took place. The Spirit moving amongst this group of young people that they were convicted of sin and fled to the only place they knew where they might find relief. They went to the church. And when Duncan Campbell tried to get back up into the pulpit, the, the stairs, there was this giant pulpit there, stairs leading up on both sides to an elevated pulpit. He couldn't get up in the pulpit. There were people everywhere 
<clears throat> all started the prayers of two women who knew God in the way that Paul wanted these Christians to know God. To know Him, not in theory, but by the experience of what they had done, what God had done in their lives. The Spirit had led them to know God in an intimate way. A real, experimental or experiential way. This is what Paul prays for the church here in Ephesus. And this is my prayer for us. And I hope you will join me in having that be your prayer for us. That the Spirit would come in wisdom and power upon us. Give us the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which He has called us. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? According to the working of His great might, give us more. Give us real understanding. Give us glimpses. These views that just go on forever of the greatness of God and what He has done for us. And may we know it by real experience in our lives. This is the plea that we should all be taking before the Father. That the Spirit would come in power and give us real knowledge and an intimate understanding of God and His work in our lives that we might daily, hourly commune with Him through the Spirit. Share in the love of God which He has spread abroad in our hearts. Romans 5.5 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the Spirit that Paul here in Ephesians prayed that God would send to enlighten these Christians to something much deeper. May the Spirit work in our hearts today and cause us to know our God in a much deeper way. And that we might moment by moment throughout our lives, throughout our days, experience this. <clears throat> to those that have never had an encounter with God at all, search out the Scriptures Take heed to the preaching of God's Word. I pray for those that it convicts you of your sin as you have an encounter with Him through His Word and through His chosen, of me chosen method of reaching the lost, which is the foolishness of preaching. That you might also fall down like Isaiah and say, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He said, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then may you find relief from your burden at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, that you might be made alive 
by the working of the Holy Spirit and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way that you'll ever find peace, the only way that you'll ever find relief from your burden. You must have an encounter with the Holy God. Cry out to Him, one of the young ladies in that revival there in Lewis, style of Lewis, in 1949 was found in front of the pulpit, up in the pulpit, laying on the ground, so convicted of sin that she cried out, is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Well, as Christians, we have good news for those who are seeking mercy. Good news. Micah tells us, who is a God like you? To know by experience. Micah says, who is a God like you? Pardoning an iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. For His people. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love, or as some translations say it, He delights in mercy. Ephesians goes on to tell us, and we're close to getting there in our study as we go through this book, that God is rich in mercy. He has an abundance of mercy. The storehouse of His mercy is overflowing. There is abundant mercy for those who are under conviction of sin. And if you're a burdened sinner, know that there is a God who is rich in mercy, who sent His own Son to provide grace and mercy for lost sinners. So if that be your case, I'd appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus to come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and grace in your time of need. Cry out for mercy, and He delights in giving it. And may you know by experience that which those of us who have encountered the living God, who have been convicted of sin and fallen at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, have experienced in our own lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, Lord, thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have begun a work in our hearts. Lord, we thank You that You chose us before the foundation of the world, that You've called us to be saints, that You've predestined our adoption as sons, that You've redeemed us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You've given us an inheritance, and that inheritance is sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, it's not ours to keep it, but You have provided of Yourself to keep it secure for us. Lord, we thank You for these things. Lord, but we long to see like Paul did for this church here in Ephesus, these people, these saints, Lord, may we continually have a more deepening sense of Your presence. 
May we continually know more of you in a real, intimate knowledge. Lord, that we might constantly have hearts that are turned towards you and our eyes that are turned towards you and our ears waiting to hear from your word what you'd have for us. Speak to us through your word. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom, give us revelation, reveal to us the meaning of your word, reveal to us the truth that you'd have us to see, reveal to us the truth of who you are and the truth of who we are and the truth of what you provided for us. For our salvation, for our sanctification, for our glorification, Lord, may we share these truths with others. May we point others towards you. May we proclaim what great things you've done. Lord, we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.